Thanks again for your being here this afternoon, and we pray that some of the things that we have to say will be encouraging to you. This is our final segment of our study together on uh, the how we how we got the Bible, and uh, we talk about the process, how God preserved His Word. If you'll look in Psalm uh, 119 and 172, the passage says, My tongue shall speak of thy word, for thy commandments are righteousness. Here the psalmist says that God's commandments are righteousness. Then in Isaiah 5, 51, verse 6, it says, Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. So we've been reading, introducing our studies each evening by showing passages that teach that God's word will always stand. God has promised that his word will be preserved. Uh, so we are sure we believe in God, we believe in his promises, and we believe that his word has been preserved. What we've been looking at is the method by which he did that. And tonight, this afternoon, we're going to talk about translations. Let me begin by saying that there's no such thing as a perfect, infallible translation. Um, I don't know if you ever heard the joke, uh, if the King James Version was good enough, the Apostle Paul is good enough for me. Of course, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, the English language did not exist in the first century. And certainly we don't believe that the, there wasn't any accurate translation of the Bible until 1611. In fact, there was, they began to translate the Bible very early in, uh, early in the uh, second century. Uh, the, the earliest translations that we have record of are uh, Syria, uh, translation from Syria, and translations in Latin. And uh, those are very old translations, very early, and so they immediately began to translate Scripture. And, uh, and there's certainly we, that's necessary if we're going to teach the Word of God in different languages. It's, it's necessary that there be translations. Uh, Jesus... Uh, sanctioned translations, in fact, if you'll notice, Jesus quoted uh, quite often from the Septuagint as well as the Apostles. In fact, he actually quoted as much from the Septuagint as he did from the Hebrew Bible. And uh, so that shows that there's, there's certainly a, a need uh, for translations. And uh, so that's what we're going to look at this, this evening or this afternoon. Generally speaking, and in my opinion, and this will probably this will be my opinion. I'm going to look at these translations from the from the standpoint of my study and what I I believe to be uh, the better translations. But most English translations are more accurate than not. Uh, but I don't want to leave the impression that translations are created equal. Um, there are more some translations that are better than others, and we're going to kind of look at the translations and kind of get some idea about where they stand in comparison to one another. But I do believe the truth can be taught from any English translation. I believe you can teach the gospel from any English translation, although some will be more challenging than others. But 
I, I believe that that's true. I believe you can take any English translation and you can teach truth from it. And the reason is, is because God, in his wisdom, uh, did not put all his truth in one place. He uh, taught them in different places. He taught them in different contexts. Uh, he used different words in places uh, to teach these truths. And he did that, I believe, so that you couldn't eradicate some truth from the Bible. You might mistranslate it over here, but it, you would find it over here. And so God, in his wisdom, didn't put his truth in one place. He scattered it throughout the Bible, and he made it where it was impossible to actually eradicate uh, his truth from, from, by translating. And that was the wisdom of God, and uh, we appreciate that very much, that he did that. For example, I'll just give you an example of that. If you're teaching, if you're studying with the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, you can actually take their testament, their Bible, the New World Translation, and you can teach them the truth from it. And usually, uh, when I, it's been a long time since I had one come to my door, I've seen them walk by my door, I think I've been black marked. But I, when they have come to my door, I actually get out the New, the New World Translation and study with them. Not only that, I have one of their interlinears. I have the kingdom interlinear, and you can use that interlinear to show them the, the, the mistakes that are made in the New World Translation. And I can tell you, that bothers them greatly. But you can do that. And uh, so I believe you can take any translation, and you can teach the truth. One of the things, for example, that the Jehovah Witnesses teach is that God is a created being. And... If you ask them to show you a passage that teaches that, they'll often go to Colossians 1 and verse 15. But if you take them in their New World Translation to Jeremiah 31 verse 9, what it says in Colossians 1 and 15 that he was the firstborn, and they say, well, that means first created. Well, you go over to Jer Jer Jeremiah 31 and 9, and it says that Ephraim was God's firstborn. So now they're faced with a dilemma. Either the New World Translation teaches a contradiction, or firstborn doesn't mean first created. And so you can use their uh, Bible to teach truth. Take the NIV. The NIV says, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And that's in Psalms 51 and verse 5. Now clearly this is a poorly translated passage, but the NIV corrects itself in Ezekiel 18 and verse 20 when it says, or the NIV the soul who sins is one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. So you see, you can take the NIV, and it teaches something that's incorrect translation here, but you can go over to uh, Ezekiel and correct it. And so that's why I say God is, has... He's, he's constructed his word in such a way that you can't eradicate the truth from it. <clears throat> so we can discover the truth of the matter uh, by doing that or by even comparing translations. It's helped to have other translations available whenever you're studying. The NIV, or a study of a translation such as the NIV, uh, particularly those of when we're studying with them like from the uh, denominational background like we go into home and you want to study with somebody 
and they may have the NIV, or they may have some other translation. Uh, I don't think it's productive to get into a debate with them about translations. I don't think that that does any good. <clears throat> so I think if you're going to teach, uh, and you're going to uh, engage in Bible studies, that it's a good idea b to become familiar with the NIV and other uh, translations that you might encounter. Uh, I would always have a, 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 a different translation uh, with you, but, uh, it, but if they insist on teaching or studying from a particular translation, I wouldn't get into an argument or a discussion about translations. It, it's best to be able to, to be able to study with them from whatever translation they prefer. In evaluating translation, we will see that some translations have problems that are minimal and apparent, and others have more glaring problems. One of the things that really irritates me is when I talk about the King James Version, I'm going to tell you I like the King James Version. I'm a little partial to the King James Version. But one of the things when I ask about why don't you like the King James Version, I say, well, it has the word Easter in it. And I mean, it has the word Easter in it. But if, that, if that's it, if that's the whole total of your condemnation of a whole entire translation because it has the word Easter in it, uh, that troubles me. Um, the word Pascha is the word it's uh, translated from. It should, be, it should be Passover, but Easter is not technically wrong, but it's, it's certainly not the best translation. But that's no reason to discredit the entire translation based on one word, especially when some of the other translations have uh, do a lot of paraphrasing. Um, they change the grammar of words and they change phrases in some passages that conform to uh, their theological bias. I mean, there's a lot worse things than translating uh, Pascha, the word, into Easter. We're going to try to study and determine, based on certain criteria, criteria, which translations are fundamentally accurate and most reliable, and just going to kind of compare them. Uh, I've gotten behind here, so let me catch up. I skipped some of that. So, One more thing about uh, translations to note is there are some things that are not inspired that are in your translations. They're in all the translations. First of all, a capitalization of words. And the original manuscripts in which our translations are taken, uh, they do not have lower and uppercase uh, letters. In fact, the oldest manuscripts, um, what they call uncle, uh, they were all uppercase. And uh, so when you see a word that is capitalized, understand that it's capitalized at the discretion of the translators. Um, this becomes particularly a problem with two words, the word spirit, and the word law. So you have to really watch it on those two words uh, because it gives the impression sometimes that it's talking about the Holy Spirit when it's not or it's talking about the law of Moses when it's not. So be careful with that. Also, uh, title and order of the books are not inspired. The books in the Bible, the way they're arranged, is not in chronological order. So uh, you have to be uh, aware of that and know that it's not like a novel. It's not reading from the beginning of the story to the end of the story like that in a chronological order. So you need to be careful of that. Also, the chapters and verses are 
um, not inspired. Uh, the translators have made decisions ba on based on what they think or where they think the chapters are to stop and the verses ought to stop and so on. And I found that in several places um, I'm puzzled as to why they stopped a chapter here and began another one here when actually it goes together. But, but just be aware of that and know that the chapters and verses are not inspired. And the most of the punctuation marks are not inspired. This can be problematic in some passages. I know of, of uh, some individuals who base a whole uh, base a whole belief about uh, something uh, based on where a comma is placed in, in the verse. I've run into that. The fifth thing is the the words that are italicized are not uh, words that are inspired they're inserted by the translator some of the problems i see with the modern speech translations is they don't italicize any word they just put them in there and you don't know that they've they've inserted the word and six is the greek prepositions are frequently omitted or inserted by the translators to conform to english idiom there are some um greek in the Greek grammar, there's some words that don't require a preposition, but in order for it to, to translate in English, we, we have to put a, trans, a preposition with it because in our language, we don't have words that have it included in the word itself, so we have to put the preposition in. And it can become a, uh, an issue uh, sometimes in the preposition. For example, uh, in the dative case, and I'm just going to give you a little example of Greek. In the dative case, you can have... Um, it could be instrumental or locative or dative, which means it can be by something or with something. And so, uh, which is it? And the, the Greek is not going to tell you there. You're going to have to go by context. And, and so you have to be aware that sometimes prepositions are, are not, uh, they are inserted by the translators. And, and finally, the definite article, the, in some places inserted where it's not in the Greek and it's omitted and in places where uh, it is. I don't understand the omission of it. I, so I can see maybe where they insert it because some places it's required and not in the Greek, but um, I'm not sure why it would be omitted. Um, and sometimes it's inserted without, without being italicized and that creates a problem. So you need to be aware of the fact that sometimes the article, you may see it there and it's not in the Greek or it's uh, not, not there and it should be. And that's particularly a problem with the word faith. We find often in passages that are important that the faith has been, the the has been dropped and you just have faith indicating maybe it, that it's talking about simple belief. So I just want to make aware of those things uh, in translation. They are not, they are not inspired. Now we're going to use certain criteria in order to examine the translations that we're going to look at this afternoon. And uh, one is the, uh, uh, the manuscript from which the translation was produced. And we talked about that this morning, about manuscripts, uh, whether that's the uh, majority text or the Westcott Hort text or uh, Nestle text. And the... Uh, Translator's understanding of inspiration, whether it's verbal, plenary, or thought. Now, we'll explain that a little more as we go. The manuscripts in which the translations uh, were produced 
Uh, we determined from the last study the on that the majority text is the uh, text, or the Texas Receptus, is the text of the New Testament. Translations from this text, I think, will be more accurate than those from uh, West Hot Court Eclectic text. Majority text and the Texas Receptus differ in about 1,800. We talked about that this morning, the difference between the Texas Receptus and the majority text. We talked about the movable new as a difference. There are also sometimes the uh, Texas Receptus uses a different uh, Greek word than maybe in a, um, the majority text. And it's not really a different word. For example, if I said he has gone to the store or I said he went to the store, I'd be saying the same thing, although I'd use went in one and gone in the other, but they would mean the same thing. And so uh, most of the, uh, the differences between the uh, Texas Receptus and the majority text are variants. They're not really differences. So I believe that the uh, translations from the majority text or Texas Receptus are or better, it's better to have those texts. Um, also, we talk talking about verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Well, verbal means word for word, and plenary means complete, full in all aspects. Uh, and that means it's not just talking about the words that are used, but also the grammar. Not only did God choose the words, but He also arranged them in such a way that the grammar is perfect. The New King James Version uh, represents a verbal plenary approach to translation in the preface of the New King James. It says, the New King James Version follows the historic precedent of the authorized version in maintaining a literal approach to translation, except where the idiom of the original language occasionally can't be translated directly into our tongue. Um, now, the NIV represents the approach of the thought that the thought was inspired. In the preface of the NIV it says, the first concern of the translators has been the accuracy of the translation and its fidelity to the thought of the uh, biblical writer. Because thought patterns and syntax differ from language to language, faithful communication of the meaning of the writers of the Bible demands frequent modifications in sentences, structure, and constant regard to contextual meaning of words. Now I want to tell you of the two, um, verbal plenary or thought approach, the Bible claims for itself to be verbal plenary. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 19 it says, but when the, they deliver you up do not worry about how or what you should speak for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. He's not going, he didn't say, I'll give you what you, you know, the thought. He said, I'm going to tell you what to say. He actually chose the words. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13, he says, These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So the very words were given to the early writers, and so the Bible supports the uh, verbal plenary. Uh, method. Also, the Bible claims that the grammar itself is also inspired. In Matthew 22 and verse 32, Jesus said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of living. 
Now, why did he say this? Because there were certain people who were denying the resurrection. And so Jesus gave them this passage, and his point was this. When God said this to Moses, that is, I am the God of uh, Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of... And he was talking after they had died. And so, he, but he used the present tense. He said, I am the God. Not I was the God. He used present tense to show that he was the God at the time he spoke to Moses of those that had died. And so he didn't use the past tense. And then he said he was the God of the living. That is also present tense. Not those that used to live or that did live, but God of the living. So uh, what Jesus did is he used grammar in order to make his point. Because God said to Moses, I am the God of the living. And he mentions those who were dead. But obviously they weren't dead in the sense that they no longer exist. They were still living. And so that was his point was that uh, he was making an argument for the resurrection. And so grammar was also inspired. Now there are two basic types of translations, excluding a paraphrase, which is really not a translation. Uh, and they distinguish from one another based on the different systems used in translation. First, there's the dynamic equivalent method of translation, the translation that's followed thought for thought method of translation. The translators take the original language, and then they determine the meaning of it, then express that meaning into receptor, the receptor language. Now, I believe these translations to be inferior because in order for them to accurately translate the, uh, translate the passages or translate from the original language, they would have to know what the true meaning of every single passage was in order for them to translate them accurately. And this system actually ac allows for the translators more liberty to inject into the translation their theological bias. I'm not accusing these people of being uh, dishonest, but when you use this method, it just lends itself to your theological bias being introduced into the translation. Now, there are some that trumpet these translations as superior translations, and then they become defensive when you call their attention to the potential bias in them. However, when it comes to the New World Translation, they are readily attack the obvious bias in that translation, and, and then they don't see the inconsistency in that. And the second method is the formal equivalent system. In that system, the translators attempt to translate word for word and as close grammatically as the original as possible. Now, I prefer these translations to the former. The negative, of course, in this system is it makes it difficult to translate some Greek idioms into English. You know, this uh, method is certainly not without difficulties. It's not, translating the Bible is not like translating, you know, a, uh, an instruction manual. It's not that easy. And so there are some difficulties with the dynamic equi or the, uh, uh, the formal equivalent method. I'm not saying there's not. But, but some of those who support the dynamic equivalent method of translation claim this system should be used because not all passages can be translated easily. Well, that I grant, that all passages cannot be translated easily. But it's 
the problem is it's not an either or proposition uh, just because some passages are not easily translatable uh, in the into English doesn't mean that you should abandon the system altogether and translate everything by the dynamic equivalent method I think you can you can use the uh, formal equivalent method and then in those passages that are difficult you can translate them uh, and in the English idiom as best as you can to the original and footnote there uh, footnotes would help in that area but just because there's some are difficult doesn't mean that that whole system should be abandoned so the uh, the argument to me is is not valid now one of the other things we're going to look at is uh, get caught up here Evidence of theological bias. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about this in the translations when we look at them, but this is the criteria that I'm going to use as far as what is uh, theological bias. When there's gross mistranslations, excessive paraphrasing, especially when a literal translation will be easily understood, you know, sometimes they just paraphrase and there's no reason for it. Changing the grammar of words and phrases, changing the meaning of words, not supported by any authority or lexicon. So uh, that's the criteria uh, that I'm going to use. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to point out any specifics of it. I'm just going to mention, you know, this one's good in the area, that area, or bad, so, and so on. And then the, uh, so we're going to now turn to evaluation of the translations. We're going to look at... Uh, some translations, two of the things we're not going to look at is we're not going to look at any interlinears. But if you're a teacher, I uh, strongly encourage you to have an interlinear. What an interlinear is, it has the Greek and then it'll have the word either below it or beside it. And, uh, and it'll have it in the order that it appears in the Greek. Now, it can be hard to read, but sometimes it can really help you in understanding passage of Scripture. So I strongly suggest that if you're a teacher that you have a good interlinear. We're not going to look at a any of the paraphrases um, because, for one thing, they're not translations, and so I think that should eliminate them just based on that reason alone. What we're going to examine is the uh, translations that are uh, the most popular, the ones you're going to find wherever you go. These are the translations that are most often used. We're going to look at the King James Version, the American Standard Version, New American Standard Version, English Standard Version, in the New International Version. So let's begin with the King James. And also, I've, we put that in the New King James because they, they are similar. Um, the King James is translated from the majority text family, that is the Texas Receptus, and which I believe is the text of the New Testament preserved by the providence of God. The translators believed in verbal uh, Plenary transpiration, that is, they believed in a word-for-word word and, and the grammar is correct. They uh, followed the formal equivalent method of translation. And their, the, the theological bias is minimal in the King James. Now, there are some problems with the King James, and we'll just list those and look at those. Some of the language is outdated. But one can find the meaning of the outdated words in any good English dictionary. Even many words in the modern speech translations are 
that are commonly used uh, by the average person require use of a dictionary. So that's that's really not much of a uh, uh, strike against the King James. Um, just a good dictionary solves that problem. And I want to also note this one thing: the outdated words are not mistranslations. Don't but, you know? A lot of people have a problem with those outdated words, but it doesn't mean it's a bad translation. It just means the word's outdated. Just look it up, figure, find out what the meaning of the word is. Some words have changed in meaning since 1611. Uh, anyone preaching from a King James should be aware of these words. If you're going to preach or teach, you need to know uh, these words and you need to know the meaning of them so you can help people understand what they mean. So it most people who preach how the King James regularly know the words and and know um, and know how to uh, cr uh, teach the meaning of those words. There are a few passages that have a Calvinistic flair to them. Um, for example, in John five verse twenty four, it says "shall not come." Galatians five and seventeen says "cannot do." Hebrews six and six has "if" in it. Hebrews 10 and 38 says, Any man, Colossians 2 and 13, said, Dead in your sins. Also, the capitalizing of words uh, such as spirit and holy spirit in some places are, and the inserting of the definite article before the word spirit in some places and the word law are without italics. So, need to be aware of that. The instance of Calvinistic flair in the King James, however, are relatively few. Especially in comparison to some of the other modern speech translations. And that's true of the uh, New King James Version. The use of archaic words such as ghost and communication and manners and quicken. Most preachers are aware of these words and, and uh, know how to correct them. Mistranslation of the Greek word Pascha, we've already looked at, Easter. Of course, that's, that's unfortunate that's in there. But we can easily explain what it is. Uh, there are weak translations that make it appear there is a contradiction. For example, in Galatians 6, verses 2 through 5, and Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7, and Acts chapter 9 and 7, Acts chapter 22 and verse 9. So uh, let's look at the King James Version. Uh, and as far as modern speech versions, this is a perversion I not perversion, version that I prefer. Get those right. <laughs> and uh, I know that that's the, the, the uh, pew Bible that you use, and I'm, I'm glad that you do. I think that's, as far as uh, modern speech translations, that's, it's a good one. The uh, New King James Version is translated from a majority text uh, family, the Texas Receptus. It's translated, translated, believe, in the verbal plenary uh, uh, of inspiration. Uh, the translators followed the formal equivalent met method of translation and, and uh, they've actually made some improvements on the King James, and King James and updating some of the language. So those are the good points of the King James or New King James Version. There are some problems with the New King James Version. It has followed and duplicated some of the same problems of translation that the King James uh, had, especially those in and uh, we mentioned above. It ha has also introduced some additional weaknesses in translation of its own. 
it teaches premillennialism in Galatians 6 and verse 16. It makes it appear Israel and the saints are two groups there. In John 2 and verse 18 and 4 and verse 3, the definite article the has been inserted before the word antichrist, and the word antichrist is capitalized. It has some weak translations relating to the work of the Holy Spirit, so you have to be careful studying with the Holy Spirit uh, out of the New King James. So let's look at the, now at the Mer New American Standard Version. I've also, our American Standard Version, I've also included the New American Standard Version because they are basically the same in these categories. Now the American Standard Version is a good translation of the Old Testament in, in particular. Uh, but even though the New Testament is translated from inferior text, it is relatively free of doctrinal bias. That's a good thing about the uh, American Standard Version. And that's why it's sometimes preferred by some of the people in the church over the King James Version. The differences in the text of the King James and the American Standard Version are usually indicated in footnotes. That's one of the good things about American Standard Version, where uh, even though it's based on an inferior text, um, when it has a variant, it footnotes that variant. So that's a good thing about the American Standard Version. It's translated. It's a... Uh, as we notice, it's, it's not, it was translated from inferior, inferior text, but it used verbal plenary inspiration. The translators followed the formal equivalent method of translation, and it has the least amount of theological bias in it. Passages relating to the Holy Spirit have been translated in a form that can easily be interpreted properly. As far as studying, there's two subjects in which American Standard Version I would recommend if you're studying, that is the marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a very good translation for those, those particular um, two su subjects or topics. Now, the problems with the American Standard Version, we already noticed that it was translated from an inferior text. The word it is improperly applied to the Holy Spirit in Acts 8 and verse 16. And the American Standard Version, like the King James Version, has some outdated words. The ASV has the same problem making it appear there is a contradiction in Acts chapter, uh, Galatians 6, verse 2 through 5, Acts 19 and 7, and Acts 22, 9. The New American Standard Version, the positive attributes of the New American Standard Version, they believed in verbal plenary inspiration. The translator follow, followed the formal equivalent method of translation. And according to my Greek teacher, and I'm taking his word for this, that the early editions of the NASB is a, an excellent translation of the rhetorical questions in the New Testament. If you're not aware, the Greek actually indicates when there's a rhetorical question by the word it uses in the Greek. And it will even indicate when the rhetorical question requires a no answer or a yes answer. And so the American, New American Standard Bible uh, translates those well. The old ones do, the earlier editions. Um, and also, it, according to my Greek teacher, that it does a good job of translating the Greek verbs. The problems with the NASB is, of course, it's translated from an inferior text and it suggests a weak view of inspiration in Luke chapter 1 and verse 3 
It teaches premillennialism in Hebrews 12, 28, Revelations 5 and 10, 20 and 4 through 5, and in the footnotes of Matthew 24, 34. It has some weak translations relating to the work of the Holy Spirit, so it's not as good as the ASV in that area. It capitalizes the L in the law, in law meaning to refer to the law of Moses, when it's some, some passages it's actually being referred to as law in general or another law. So now let's look at the New International Version. Uh, positive attributes of the new NIV. There are some passages in NIV that are very good translations. For example, Genesis 1, 28, fill. Galatians 6 and 2, burdens. Uh, Galatians 6 and 5, load. Daniel 9 and 24, 77. It's a very good rendering, and there are other passages of the NIV. But there are many negatives about the NIV that outweigh the positive NIV. My Greek teacher says it's a Jekyll and Hyde book uh, translation. It has some very good stuff and has some very bad stuff. The problem with the NIV is it's uh, translated from an um, inferior trans uh, text. Uh, the translators did not believe in a verbal plenary. They believed in a thought for thought. Um, they used a dynamic uh, method of translation. That is the thought for thought method, and there's a lot of bias present. They paraphrase many passages, even paraphrasing passages where there's no deficiency in the English language. No need for it, really. The Greek passages could be literally translated into English without any problem, yet they paraphrase them. Uh, there are no italicized words in the NIV, so you're unaware when they've inserted words, and they insert a lot of words. Um, they even change the meaning of words such as uh, weeds for tares in Mark 13, 25, and that's problematic because um, tares look like wheat, but not all weeds look like wheat. They change the grammar. For example, they change the word pray in 1 Timothy 2 and 8 from a verb to a noun and lifting up from a participle to a verb, lift up. And those are just some examples. That's not all of them, of course. I'm just throwing out a few. There's a theological bias. Calvinism is taught in Psalms 51 and 5. We've already looked at that. Changes the word flesh to sinful nature in 17 passes, implying total depravity. Teaches the direct operation of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. Changes the word works to deeds in James 2 and 14. And also in other passages such as Acts 26 and 20, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and Hebrews 6 and 6. Teaches salvation by faith only in Romans 1 and 17, and Galatians 2, 16, and Romans 10 and 10. Justification at the point of belief and salvation at the point of confession in those passages. Teaches premillennialism in, in Matthew 19 and 28, Acts 3 and 21, Ephesians 1 and 10, and Revelation 20 and 4. And Pentecostalism in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10, and Ephesians 4 and verse 13. Now the RSV and the ESV, basically we're going to look at the ESV. Um, ESV is a little better than RSV, but not by a lot. The English Standard Revised Version 
1971 edition. The RSV is published and owned by the National Council of Churches. I'm not sure I have that. Do I have that? No. The RSV is published uh, and owned by the National Council of Churches. The theology of the National Councils of Churches is diametrically to the teaching of the church. Um, they are the greatest purveyors of false doctrine in the United States. According to several sources, the difference between the ESV and the RSV is about 10%. So we're not going to look at the RSV. We're just going to look at the ESV. The ESV is translated from an inferior text. The Greek text, 83% corresponds to the Nestle's Alien text, 27th edition. Uh, the translators claim to the uh, uh, formal equivalent method of trans or they claim to the formal equivalent translation method, method and they also claim verbal plenary inspiration. However, uh, they're kind of loose on that, I think. They claim to adhere to these two aspects, that is verbal plenary and formal equivalent, although there's, there's plenty of paraphrasing. Uh, in the ESV. There are no italicized words in the ESV. Therefore, the reader is completely in the dark as to which words were, are inserted and which are, which are from the Greek manuscripts. And they do insert a lot of words. For example, in First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, the Greek text has 14 words and the King James and American Standard Version translated in English using 15 words, respectively. The ESV has 20 words. That's one out of every three is not in the Greek text. It's been supplied by the translators. That's a lot of sticking in a lot of words there. There are other passages where the ESV has adopted, uh, has added to the text, I'm sorry, added to the text, and an unnecessary paraphrased text. For example, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 30:16, Therefore, the reader is unaware of this and other interpolations uh, by the translators of the ESV. Because the ESV translators chose not to italicize added words, the reader must be very cautious in this area. The ESV teaches Calvinism in the footnotes of Romans 1 and 17. It teaches justification at belief and salvation in at confession in Romans 10 and 10 by mistranslating the preposition uh, uh, ice, which means unto, to is. Other, such, uh, other passages such as Galatians 2.16 and Colossians 2.12, the article is mistranslated to promote faith-only doctrine. Premillennialism is taught in the SV in Daniel 9.27, Matthew 19.28, Ephesians 1.10, Romans 11.25, and Revelation 20 and 4. Pentecostalism is taught in Ephesians 4.13. According to the ESV, miraculous gifts were to last until we attain the unity of the faith. Now, I'll just ask you, have we obtained the unity of the faith yet? I mean, we're all united in our faith? Of course not. Well, that suggests that we're not, the miraculous gifts will not cease until that happens. The ESV mistranslates only begotten in John 3.16 to only son, uh, obscuring the virgin birth. It also mistranslates Matthew 5.17, Luke 1 and 3. 
It changes the grammar in 1 Timothy 2 and 11 and Galatians 3 and 2 and 5 and other places. Now, there's some good points about the ESV. The ESV, ESV is a better rendering over the King James Version in, in Genesis 1 and 28. Fill the earth is superior to replenish. The verbs in 1 Timothy 5 and 2 and 1 John 3 and 9 are better renderings than the King James. The ESV properly translates the different verbs borrows in verses 2 and verse 5 in Galatians 6 and clears up the supposed contradiction between these two passages. The ESV clears up the supposed contradiction between Acts 9 and 7, Acts 22 and 9. The ESV accurately translates the two different Greek words uh, that are different in another in Galatians 1, 6 through 7. One is the word uh, etepon and the other is alo. And one means uh, the another of the same kind, and the other means another of a different kind. And so it, it clears that up. The ESV rendering of 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 is better rendering than King James. The word, uh, uh, the Greek word in uh, Matthew 13 and 15, in Mark 4 and 12, and Luke 30, 22 and 32, Acts 3 and 19, Acts 15 and 19, and 26, 18, and 28 and 27, is proper translated turn in the ESV. The King James, however, translates the word in the passive voice, be converted, and turn's a better word. Be converted suggests that there's something done to us, not something we do. So the ESV is a better translation in that part. The ESV, in my opinion, is better than the NIV, but not as good as other translations such as the King James Version. I wanted to put these translations out to you and in order to that so that we can compare them and show them and see how they stack up together. And if you haven't noticed or you haven't figured it out, I'll kind of put them in the order that I like them best. <laughs> but I think they're better. I think the King James, New King James, and then the American Standard Version, the NSA, NASB, the Revised Standard and English Standard Version, then finally the NIV and these are the most popular translations that you'll find most often in uh, churches and uh, I I think it's a good idea to have all of them and, and look at them and even other translations but uh, my preference is the King James Version and New King J James Version based on the things that we've talked about I think I don't think I got that yeah the bias in the RSV. Well, we haven't talked about the first principles. I hope this study has been interesting to you and helped you see how God has brought to us the Word of God. And uh, we can rely on the fact that He has preserved His Word for us, and uh, we have it today, and we can count on it. If there are those who have heard the gospel and, and uh, desire to obey the gospel today, or those who Desire the prayers of the church. One of you, the class, will ask you to come sit on this front pew as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.